You're listening to episode 29 of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice, and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What is happening, my fellow money owners? I have an extremely special guest on the show today. His name is Jance Hoffman. And for the past decade, Jance has been assisting both borrowers and financial advisors in all of the nuances of the student loan repayments. Um, and I've mentioned this on several podcasts that I wanted to have an expert come in and talk to you about it because even though I took a nice two-day boot camp with both Jance and um, his um, his coworker, Heather Jarvis, about two years ago now, I definitely feel like he can offer a lot more than I can on this podcast show. So we'll dive right into it. But he also runs his own RIA that helps borrowers with their student loan debt. And he's the CEO of the CLSA Institute, which helps train financial planners to advise their clients on student loan repayment. He's also been featured on PBS and in the New York Times about the same thing, student loan repayment. So without further ado, welcome Jance to the show. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks for having me. And uh, welcome everybody here listening. Um, Hopefully we can get some, uh, some lovely topics of student loans discussed, everyone's favorite. (laughs) <laughs> for sure. Uh, definitely our listeners' favorite. We got tons and tons of questions for you. So we'll try to get through as many as we can. But before we kick off with that, you have a lot of exciting stuff going on um, over at the CSLA Institute. So um, please let us know what's happening. Yeah. So um, the designation is sort of uh, solidifying its relationship further with the California State University system, um, where we, are, we work closely with Humboldt State University. And so far, we have been offering our education requirement, to, uh, the coursework through that uh, university. But uh, starting spring semester of 2020, um, the uh, CSLP coursework will be split into four different courses and it will be a certificate program. Um, we're still going back and forth with the university whether or not it will be a graduate level certificate program or a bachelor level certificate program, uh, but it will um, help elevate the standard, the designation, the educational requirements uh, that the CSLP will have. Of course, um, those individuals that have already gone through the designation already are very knowledgeable, but um, it will uh, help just bring in line the uh, CSLP designation with um, sort of the the more reputable and known designations like certified financial planner and others. Fantastic. So it sounds like there are any financial planners listening to this who work with clients with student loans that they should sign up for this so that they have a designation that could be recognizable to people looking for that kind of information. Yeah, we we definitely think that uh, any advisor that is going to be providing advice, whether they're advisor from a tax standpoint or financial advisor, should really seek out some some education and knowledge base and, and really prove that they know this information before they start giving advice to these borrowers. Um, Unfortunately, student loans tentacles reach out to so many aspects of tax and financial planning that um, ignoring um, student debt or not being capable uh, of understanding how it affects other aspects of financial planning can really create um, risks for the borrowers and liabilities for the financial advisors. So uh, we are uh, big proponents of people having education in this space um, and making sure that uh, those individuals with student loans are going to qualified advisors and those advisors that are out there that are um, providing advice to people that have student loans are really not creating liability for themselves by by misguiding uh, their clients with incorrect information. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I remember from that two-day course that I took with, with you and Heather that there was just an abundance of information. There's so many different programs. You really need to know what you're doing to give proper advice on on student loans um, as, as a financial planner. And really like what we're all looking for is to give the best possible advice to our clients so that they're either paying the least amount of money possible or they're just doing the right thing as far as what they need to do with their student loan debt. So um, I highly recommend going over to the CSLA Institute's website. We will link to it in the show notes and checking it out to see if it's something that would work for you and your practice. Yeah, we we would uh, love to grow our base of CSLP. We think that uh, every person out there that has student loans, um, unfortunately, they enter a a very uh, difficult to navigate um, environment with their loan servicers, but also... uh, 
you know, there are very complex uh, terms and strategies and, and student debt, as I mentioned, will affect things like tax planning and retirement planning and how you engage with your benefits at work and how you qualify for a mortgage. And, and all of that um, really needs to be handled with, with care by the advisors that, that, are, that are supporting those clients. Okay, fantastic. So yeah, definitely check out the CSLA Institute's website for anyone listening to this who's interested. And um, if it's okay with you, Jance, we'll move on to some of the really cool questions that we got from the audience. Oh, yes. I'm ready for the brain busters. <laughs> no, you're going to be great. So the the first one we got, which I thought you might sort of get a chuckle out of, was um, what the odds are of a general student loan forgiveness um, oh. are. So what like Bernie Sanders has been talking about and some of the other politicians, what are the odds of something like that happening where there's just a general student loan forgiveness for <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it would be fantastic if the uh, federal government decided they were going to discharge all student debt. I think there'd be a discussion that would have to be had regarding federal student loans versus private student loans. Would we really take taxpayers' money um, and then give that money to uh, private banks and private companies that um, have purchased federal student loans through refinancing? Um I also think that there's you know, some of the ideas that we kicked around there have limitations, who gets uh, how much debt forgiven, what their incomes could be. Um, in general, though, I don't think that it's going to materialize. Um, you know, I, it would take some significant buy-in on both sides of the aisle uh, in order to get something like that done. Um, while, uh, you know, a change in, in president could um, sort of set course for policy. Uh, I just don't know if we would see a, a bipartisan agreement to be able to um, discharge all student debt, unfortunately. For, for my personal clients and my friends, um, gosh, I would love it if that happened. Um, I think that there's some great economic, <laughs> yeah, there's some great economic opportunities that could, that could unleash some income of these generations that have been held back by student debt. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I think most people are better off planning around the current regime that are there. And if that happens, it's a nice little windfall that, that could benefit you. But until then, they should try to make do with, with, with the rules and processes that are in place now. Yeah, I love how you put that. And I totally agree. I think, you know, what the rules are or the rules that we can expect for the long term until something changes. So in the meantime, try to qualify maybe for some of these other programs um, that will actually forgive your loan under what's going on with the with the current climate rather than trying to anticipate something that we may or may not happen know will happen in the future. Yeah, it's uh, always trying to make uh, advice and, and make plans based upon some unknown potential change in the future is very difficult to do. So, you know, certainly borrowers now should avoid default. They should look at the income driven repayment plan. They should really um, look at private refinance with a critical eye as to whether or not that's beneficial for them. Um, those people going to school, of course, should, should try to minimize the amount of debt they borrow. Uh, to, to, to finance their education, of course, stick to the federal loans first um, before they head out to private loans. Um, you know, some of the basic strategies that are out there with regards to, to financing your education still are, are, are truthful and, and correct. Um, uh, but, you know, until, until we have a change uh, in, in the government and until the government's willing to work together and see this as something that they're going to take um, federal dollars towards, I, I think that we're, like you said, we're, we're better off just working in the environment that we're in. Uh, and getting the best out of the environment that we possibly can. Yeah. So with that in mind, what would qualify for full student loan forgiveness? So the public student loan forgiveness programs. Uh, so uh, for federal student loans, uh, the death or permanent disability of a borrower uh, will discharge those federal student loans. Also, um, the death of a parent borrower, if the parent borrowed for their kids or that student, um, if the parent had loans because their child uh, went to school and they financed that education through the PLUS program. Um, there are some forgiveness opportunities for the federal student loans as well. Uh, if um, schools close and the uh, students are unable to complete their education. Uh, and there's, there's uh, the borrower defense fund that exists too. So there's dollars set aside um, for schools, uh, Title IV schools that were uh, misrepresenting employment opportunities and education opportunities uh, to their individuals. Unfortunately, 
Um, most of those schools that have gone out of business, you know, your Corinthian colleges and uh, most of these schools that are misrepresenting employment opportunities, uh, though they, they have sourced a large amount of money for the federal government spread out a, a, across a, a, a number of students, um, on the individual level, uh, the undergraduate borrowing limits are such that most of those students ended up saddled with private student loans. And those private student loans don't have these forgiveness clauses for the um, bad actors from the schools that exist. Um, so hmm. so that, that's a bit of a challenge there. Um, you know, with regards to, again, your federal student loans, you have forgiveness uh, terms that are attached to the income-driven repayment plans after your maximum repayment periods. Um, you have forgiveness opportunities uh, that are for working in uh, public service loan forgiveness, of course, so working in the public sector for 10 years while making payments based on income. Um, that can also lead to forgiveness. Uh, there are a number of loan repayment assistance programs that are either uh, offered by schools, uh, the federal government, or states or nonprofits where um, those uh, individuals, those organizations will be looking to encourage or incentivize uh, employment in certain areas. Maybe it's geographically, maybe it's an area of need um, where they will discharge federal student debt for in exchange for working in certain areas or, or private student debt for that matter. Um, and then on the private side, uh, from a forgiveness term, there are um, some ways in which private student loans can be negotiated uh, through strategic default and reduced payments. Um, it gets into some muddy waters or something. They want to talk to an attorney or someone specializes in this field. Um, but, but there are some differences in um, the ability for private lenders to have collections versus federal lenders and, and more room to, to work with them in, in settlements that, that don't exist with the federal government. Yeah. So there actually, I mean, there are a wide opportunity for people to get student loan forgiveness if they're willing to look for it, it sounds like. Right. There there are opportunities, um, certainly, depending upon um, how much debt you have, uh, what your degree's in, where you want to work, where you're willing to work, um, and really what you're willing to do in your finances. You know, the income-driven repayment plans can be great tools for borrowers to reduce the payments that they're making, free up dollars for other goals, and have student debt forgiven. Um, but how much value is there is really driven by um, individual circumstances, uh, willingness for borrowers to engage in, in, in with the retirement plans at work, file taxes in certain ways. Um, and it's really important that borrowers uh, get good advice about that because um, heading into those income-driven repayment plans can end up costing a borrower more in the long run um, if it's unlikely that they're going to get forgiveness. Uh, they, they maybe just be paying more interest than they otherwise would if they paid it off. So um, there are opportunities for forgiveness for, for, for everybody, uh, determining how valuable those are and if um, somebody should pursue them is, is more of the complex nature of that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I remember from our two-day workshop that uh, we were given all sorts of scenarios of people making different kinds of income in which when they took out certain loans, the dates that they took out loans, all of that applied to whether or not they could be eligible or where it would even be worth it to them to apply for some of these income-based repayment programs. So I highly recommend if you are somebody with a lot of student loan debt to seek out somebody with the CSLP or um, with any really who has a, just an abundance of student loan information that can really point you in the right direction because um, it can get really out of hand. So I guess our, like something that maybe we can offer the listeners here is if let's say they, they don't necessarily want to work with anybody or they, or they don't have the means to do that, what's the best place for them to go to get some information on like pointing themselves in the right direction? Yeah, so there, unfortunately, we, we understand um, that most people that have assets are the ones that are going to be hiring financial advisors that can help them. Um, we would like this service to be available to everybody, but we realize that you know people get paid for their time and money. And certainly a lot of the CSLP do pro bono work and work with individuals that have lower incomes as well. Um, and and unfortunately, where the loan, where student loan borrowers should get help is, is part of the problem that's been letting them down the most. So uh, the federal student loan mm -hmm. services are paid by the Department of Education um, to service loans, and they have loan counselors that are there supposedly to provide advice to student loan borrowers. Um, so that's one source. Unfortunately, though, um, 
most people's interactions with the student loan servicers has been negative. Um, you know, they're pretty much all being sued. Um, so it, it creates an environment where um, the loan servicers have incentives to put borrowers into forbearance instead of income-driven repayment plans. Um, the loan servicers have, you know, small margins they're working on. So they have call center employees that are making um, maybe minimum wage, slightly more than minimum wage, providing advice with a day or two of training to borrowers. And um, uh, unfortunately, it's led to a, a lot of deficiencies. So a lot of borrowers have been forced to go to other sources, you know, Student Loan Hero, uh, places like uh, Student Loan Planner. Uh, of course, the Department of Education mm -hmm. has a lot of information available. Um, you know, there is a wealth of information out there. Unfortunately, um, what your options are, are so specific and catered to each individual person. Uh, it's very difficult to read an article and say, hey, you should look into a student. If you have student loans, you should look into an income-driven repayment plan. But what does that mean? What are you looking for? Um, and one other challenge for almost everybody that has student debt is when they are scouring the internet looking for solutions, uh, they're being bombarded with private refinance opportunities. And there is a significant amount of risk um, in those private refinance opportunities uh, that that the borrowers maybe don't understand because most individuals just look at interest rate and traditional repayment options uh, and they don't realize the the benefits that they may be giving up with their federal student loans that could end up costing them more in the long run yeah that's a great point because um I mean, it definitely seems like you can get a better interest rate out there with some of these refinancing opportunities but um like you mentioned if you if you become disabled or if you die right your your loans get discharged under the federal student government program, whereas with some of these private lenders, it kind of probably depends on the terms of that deal. Right. Each, each uh, contract is going to have its own promissory note, and some of them are quite nasty, um, especially the ones that um, are issued to undergraduate students where their parents have to co-sign. Uh, the vast majority of those loans have co-signers, 98% or so. Um, and some of those come with terms where if the, the, the student's parents were to pass away, they owe the entire amount on the spot. So you really want to look at those terms and, and there's some intangibles there as well, right? Ability to postpone payments if you lose your job or economic hardship deferment, things that you don't really think of as being valuable um, may be valuable in the future and you may be giving those up um, by assuming a private loan. Um, and, and, and I'd like to caution one other thing here, something that's becoming more, um, more relevant today is more employers are recognizing that um, student debt is an issue, and they're trying to be part of the solution, uh, but they don't really have dollars available to help. So a number of these companies um, are getting in beds with the likes of SoFi and Common Bond, where uh, employees are incentivized and encouraged to do private refinances. And I think it's I think it's a slippery slope because there's not there's nothing else in your benefit package that is made available to you that can be detrimental to your finances while private refinance can be. And because it's in the benefit mm. package, a lot of employees will just assume that's the right decision um, when many times that's that's not the appropriate decision for them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it's actually, it's funny you mentioned that because we had a question come in about that. Um, and the listener asked, what is a good way to negotiate student loan repayment with an employer? And are there tax consequences to doing so? So I guess assuming that you don't just take the employer's benefit package of refining with with SoFi or one of these other ones, is there is there anything else that an employee can do when they're talking with a potential employer? Right. So there um, are a number of ways an employer can help benefit them. And again, it's going to come down to the unique circumstances. So some employers have already put in place contribution models where the employers will make payments directly to the employee's student loans on their behalf. Unfortunately, uh, under current tax code, um, that is considered wages just as if they paid additional salary. So it's, it, it's really an expensive way to, to provide assistance. Um, from the employer's standpoint, if they want to get $100 to the employee's student loans, the employee would have to pay federal income taxes, state income taxes, and payroll taxes to net that 100 bucks. So the $100 to the payment to the student loans may end up costing um, – uh, let's say 140 in wages. And then on top of that, the employer has to pay their share of federal of FICA taxes. They're going to have to pay benefit costs and everything else, unemployment, workers' compensation. So it could cost the employer $200, $220 to get $100 net uh, to the student loans. 
Um, so, so many employers. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a great option. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> yeah. So many employers have looked for alternative options. Um, you know, the Abbott Labs 401k, where employers are trying to structure their 401k such that they can uh, match in the 401k what employees are paying to their student loans. So they're not foregoing employer matches by making student loan payments. Um, there's some challenges there. The IRS hasn't provided general rulings yet. Uh, they've just done private letter rulings, which limit the, the, the scope and range of them. And uh, you know, ultimately, the employer could just set up a safe harbor plan where they do automatic 3% match and they wouldn't have to worry about any, any student debt payment at all. So they could, uh, you know, it, it helps incentivize, some, but, but it's not the greatest help. Um, a lot of employers are setting up plans where uh, employer employees at the end of the year that have unused paid time off can then direct that money directly to their student debt at the end of the year since it was already included in wages uh, instead of you know, mm-hmm. having that money come back to them. So um, then with regards to what an employee can do in their own control, uh, depending upon what their repayment strategy is. So if they are aggressively paying down their loans, um, then of course they're going to want to allocate resources there. But if they're on an income driven repayment plan, maybe they're expecting forgiveness from the maximum payment period, or certainly if they're working in a public sector job and they're working towards public service loan forgiveness, they should really explore what sort of uh, deferred compensation plans they have, what sort of pre-tax retirement options they have, health savings accounts, um, maybe flex savings accounts, uh, FSA dependent care, things like that, whatever they can do to find ways to reduce their income is going to reduce their student loan payment uh, and maximize the amount of forgiveness that they can have. So um, there are certainly ways that employees can look at the benefits and how they engage in bit with benefits, how they retire, safer retirement, um, and that can be beneficial. Uh, also, employees that are in a salary negotiation period um, can uh, look at how their employment contract and compensation is structured that may be more beneficial for documentation of income for income driven repayment plans than other options. So there are some things that, that can be done, um, but you know, uh, most of it comes down to are you, are you willing to, to, to live with less income in the short term to have less money go into your student debt that you eventually get later in some sort of deferred compensation agreement or, um, or you know, retirement savings, something like that. Yeah, for sure. And it seems to also apply to the public student loan forgiveness programs as well, because if you're working for some of these nonprofits or government jobs where you're making 120 payments and you're working somewhere for 10 years, you're possibly foregoing, you know, the opportunity cost of greater income by working somewhere else, but you're also, you know, in a position where you can actually get your loans forgiven. So these are definitely things that when you're applying for a job or you're thinking about where to work, you need to weigh the options. And it might even make sense at that point to talk to a planner who can at least do maybe a project-based planner who can look at it for you and just give you an assessment off the top of what makes sense for you. Right. I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of people um, pursuing their dream job um, and where they want to work because they want to work there, not because of their student debt. Um, but if their primary goal and what would make them happy is not having debt, well, then um, you'd want to explore those opportunities. Uh, but I, I've talked to a number of people that said, well, I don't really want to work at a hospital anymore. I want to do something else with my, with my life. Um, and so, but, I, but I know I'm here for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, well, you know, ultimately, you only have one life to live. Um, and I, I think mm-hmm. that it's important that people really think about what's, what's their goal, what do they want out of their life, um, and, and work with someone that can help them manage and mitigate the, the consequences of their choices within their financial plan. Um, and their student debt, but but I just I just hate the idea of people being slaves to their debt. I'd rather have them have some freedom to choose what they want to do in their life. Yeah, for sure. I love how you put that too, and that's definitely something that we talk about on this podcast a lot. Is like, what do you really want out of your life? And ten years is a long time to go work somewhere just for student loan forgiveness. So definitely something to be thinking about if it's not really your dream job to go work for one of these places. Like how unhappy do you want to make yourself over 10 years for, to potentially get that loan forgiveness? Right. You know, it's, it's ideally you went to school to get into some profession that you love. Um, and, and then you get out and you're like forced into this job that you don't really love when you'd maybe be working in another aspect of, of, of what you went to school for. Right. I also get a question from a lot of 
graduate students that are considering fellowships or maybe considering residency programs or additional schooling and saying, you know, is it worth it? Should I, should I, should I take on this lower income or should I take on additional debt for it? And, and my answer is, is almost always that it's the, the worth it isn't about the repayment part. The worth it is, you know, is this what you want to do with your life and your career? Is that what you want to do? So if you're a you know, if you're, a, say, a veterinarian, you're considering a, a residency for surgery to be a board certified surgeon. Um, is that worth it to you or are you just doing it because it helps you get extra money and it's not going to make you happy? So the decisions, I think, though money plays a factor, um, really need to be about you know, the career and putting some thought into career and life and, and goals that are more important than, than student debt. Yeah, definitely. And um, to add on to that, I mean, working with a planner for things beyond the student loans can be really helpful um, just to get get your goals in order, get a vision for where you see your life going, and then really lighting that fire so you go out there and do it. Um, I've seen many clients come in and we've worked a lot of that stuff out and then they kind of, they go on their merry way and they, and they're really able to do the things that they want to do in their life. And we figure out all the money on the other side. So that doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, don't think about anything related to the money when you're, (laughs) when you're going to go take on, you know, one of the biggest financial decisions of your life. But at the same time, like make sure that the thing that you're doing is really something that you want to be doing. And I think a lot of the times what happens is that because we're so young, when we have to make this decision, uh, it's not necessary, you know, we don't always make the right one. I know I was kind of, I don't know, like a dingbat, you know, when I was 18 and had to make a decision about what I wanted to do with my life. So it's really, I think it's really difficult. So if you have any advice um, for maybe some of the young listeners out there, people who are, um, they're starting college or they're entering college and they're thinking about what they want to do, what advice do you have to them about um, thinking about student loans and taking on loans and everything else that goes along with going to college? Yeah, you know, uh, I, 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 I kind of pause here because one thing that I despise is when I turn on the TV or the radio and they have some college planning specialist on and all they do is berate kids about how much they borrow and why they shouldn't make these choices. But there's like no thought that they're like 18 year old kids that are that are just like, hey, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. I'm just kind of following the path that I'm supposed to do or that my parents sort of led me to follow. Right. Um, or I, I come from a family that doesn't have resources and money, and this is this is my only option to improve my life and better my life. So I I I, I don't want to be one of those guys that sits there and, and and scolds people for not thinking through the idea of going to school, right? Um, but mm-hmm. but I also would would say that things have changed in higher education. Um, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s you could go to a state public school and tuition was, you know, maybe two or $3,000 a semester, right? Um, at that cost, it's almost worth it for the parents to pay you to get out of the house and like screw off somewhere else. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but now when you're looking at the same you know, public institutions costing 30, $35,000 a year, you know, that's a pretty big financial commitment. Um, and, and with that, I think families need to kind of take a step back and determine, like, is this the right decision and is this the right time for the right decision? Uh, I think that families need to, to be more open to the idea of kids after high school getting the opportunity to maybe have some life experiences, try some things out to have a better idea of what they want to do in their lives. Um, you know, some kids are very focused and driven and they sort of know what they want to do and they're going to go. Other kids, I would say, like myself, when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in the world. Um, and I probably could have benefited just from some experience to, to try some different things out to kind of find more of a passion for myself. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that's important. I also would, would take a look at the monetary investment that parents and families are making um, and, and, and see if there's you know, potentially better uses of that money. I mean, if you look at $35,000 a year by four years and you're talking at over $120,000, $130,000 plus interest while you're in school. In a lot of places, that would buy a, a nice house that somebody or a condo that somebody could manage or apartment that could be a long-term revenue stream. Um, so I think it kind of goes yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. You know, people really have to decide what they want out of life. And if you don't know, maybe this is a financial decision that you put off for a year or two while you try to figure out what you want to do so you can be a little more laser focused with what you're going to school for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love the idea of kids taking a year off, at least between high school and college, and just trying things out and seeing what you like. I mean, 
I, um, I, I went to school for, I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, I'm a financial planner now. So <laughs> obviously that didn't go in the direction that I think my whole family thought it was going. And I was one of those kids that that was always what I wanted to do. So um, it wasn't until I spent some time in a hospital that I realized that I just, I didn't even like being around sick people, which is kind of a requirement of being a doctor, right? So um, <laughs> I think that these are things that we can work out. <laughs> we for sure can work out if we just took a little bit of time away from school and our studies and everything, you know, that we have going on when we're in high school and middle school that's, you know, kind of all consuming and get some real life experience, you know, interning somewhere, getting a mentorship or talking to different people that do different careers. I think like um, also growing up, I remember like there was kind of, you know, only a few professions that were even told to me that were professions. Like I didn't realize there was this whole world out there of things that I could do. I just was like, okay, well, I can either be like an attorney or a doctor or a dentist. That was kind of like, <laughs> that was kind of all I thought that there was out there. Um, and I think it's a little bit different now for kids today that, you know, they're exposed to a little bit more. Um, but that being said, like, you don't necessarily know if you want to do it until you go out there and, and actually do it. So um, great advice for sure on maybe taking a year off and kicking the can down the road on a very major financial decision. Yeah. And I think it gives you a good life experience too, you know, wait tables, um, dig some ditches, you know, it gives you an idea of, of, of valuing like what I, Hey, I, my in the summers, I was, I was working as an ex, you know, an excavating company, digging ditches, laying sewer pipe, um, to make extra money. So I, I think that, um, you know, it, it gives you some, some experience. It gives you some life experience to kind of say like, this isn't really what I want to do with my life, or maybe this is something I actually enjoy and you can make very good money as a plumber. Um, so, you know, there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing to say that that's not a, a good profession and a good career to have. It's more about, you know, what you want out of your life and, and, and taking the time to figure that out. You know, I, when I went to school, I went, I, I thought I was gonna be a physical therapist. Then I was a biology major. I ended up getting my undergrad in elementary education. I think I spent six hours in the classroom with, with, with second graders before I was like, no, this is, this is no way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think honestly, um, also when I've talked to my clients, almost all of them have some sort of experience of, you know, they thought they were going to be one thing and then something happened to them in their lives and then they ended up going in a completely different direction. So I think like for any of our young listeners out there, it's it's just, you know, you really don't know what you don't know. Um, and the more life experience that you can get before you have to make a, big, a huge financial decision, I think the better off it's going to be. Um, and for those out there who have trouble listening to their parents, talk to other people, you know, I feel like you think your parents don't know it all. I know we were all there at one point <laughs> in our lives where, you know, you just think like, ah, my parents, what do they know? Um, I need to talk to somebody else. Talk to whoever you can, you know, talk to your friend's parents or talk to, you know, talk to anyone really that you can to get some extra life experience and just hear about what else is out there in the world. I think the other thing that's really interesting about what's going on is a lot of the, um, a lot of higher education is starting to go on moving online. And I'll be really interesting to see, uh, I'd be interested to see what happens in the next, you know, a couple of decades, the difference between like what my kids will end up doing versus like what I did and what even kids who are, you know, eight or 10 years old now end up doing, because it seems like um, there are more options for people to learn a lot more without actually going to school. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a lot of options, too, for employers to get involved in the education space. I know Google does things like this, where um, why, why should somebody you know, go to a four-year college to learn, you know, general education. I, I understand there's, there's value to all of that. Um, but when they want to be a computer coder, right. Um, and employers could mm -hmm. expedite and have more specific training. That's more direct to, um, their particular profession and their hiring needs if, if they provided the education, um, so I think there's other opportunities. I know there's like a, in my area, there's a couple auto mechanic shops that um, they take apprentices right out of high school. And, 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 and those are good careers. And they open up, you know, garages across the Northwest for them to run. Um, and, and it's because they have a hard time finding good quality employees. So why not, you know, get involved early on? So I think, I think you're right. I think that education is, is changing and, and, um, it, it, there's there's still the old education that exists. I mean, it's going to be hard to be a, a biologist or a doctor without getting hands-on experience, right? Yeah, um, for sure. But there are some things like you know economics and business that uh, are really um, more conceptual, and it, we don't really need the the grand college uh, for it. Yeah, I definitely, I totally agree with you there. I also don't think that any of the Ivy Leagues are going to go away. 
um, and something to think about if you're a parent of a child. Um, I know I, I've definitely, I have some clients who say like, well, you know, whatever they want for their education is fine, you know, spare no expense. Um, but meanwhile, like they <laughs> maybe shouldn't be saying that, right? Because they have to put away all this money to send their kid to school or otherwise take out parent plus loans. So it is something to consider if you have kids that are, you know, middle school age to start having these conversations with them um, so that they're aware of really how much money these things cost. Um, and you can you can make it fun. You don't have to make it like this, you know, all bearing, extremely serious conversation. Um, I wish I had some tips about that, but my, my kid's only two years old, so <laughs> I haven't had that conversation with him yet. But I imagine, though, that if you really explain to them what it costs and what it would like, maybe the difference would be if, if you were willing to give them some money of like, hey, you know, I can help you start a business if you have a really good idea. And like we put away this amount of money for you for college. So maybe start thinking about whether or not you want to go to this extremely expensive school or a state school that maybe you can potentially have money left over if your parents did a good job actually putting away money for it. Um, so something to think about when you're having conversations as a parent or as a child who, um, who wants to know from their parents what, what the right thing is to do. And I think that that's kind of something that we forget as parents sometimes, like we want our kids to kind of have free will and choose, but they also, they want and need some direction. They really do. Yeah. And I, I also think it's, it's interesting too, like a lot of parents now, they went to college when the cost of college was significantly different than it is now. Um, and they sort of feel like, hey, this is what my parents did for me. I should do for my kids. Um, but as I mentioned, the cost has gone up so much that it's, that is a major financial decision. And oftentimes families are, you know, delaying their own retirement choices to put their kids through college. Um, or, you know, they're, they're put in these positions where, um, you know, they don't relate with the issues of kids coming out now. I have, a, you know, a lot of younger professionals that they are entering the workforce and, you know, people, their parents age are they're working for. So, you know, you're a young veterinarian or you're a young doctor or dentist and the older uh, generation that's there says things like these kids, you know, they should just buckle down and pay off their loans. I did it when I graduated. Well, you know, there, there's, <laughs> there's a major disconnect as to, as to the circumstances that existed then and existed now um, for a lot of, of the, of these older generation that's looking at these younger individuals or looking at putting their kids through school and saying like, well, this is what we should do, um, because we're supposed to, or you should pay your loans off because you're supposed to. That's what I did. It's a different world and there are different options available to it than, than there. And I think there's some, some understanding needs to go on on that side too. Yeah, for sure. I have kind of a funny story about this. It's not related specifically to student loans, but I had, um, my grandparents told me a long time ago, like, oh, when you buy a house, don't worry. You just put an extra $50 per month towards your mortgage and it'll be paid off in no time. Um, yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of this because it's just like, oh yeah, whatever. Don't worry about it. You just put an extra 50 bucks a month towards your student loans and you'll just, you know, you'll just pay them off in no time. It'll be fine. But yeah. meanwhile, like, I mean, the last student loan example I saw was uh, somebody who had $284,000 in student loan debt. I don't think the extra 50 bucks a month is really going to cut it. No, 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 that's not going to make <laughs> much change in the outcome. And that's, and that's one of the challenges with these employer plans I was talking about. You know, um, People get 100 bucks a month from their employer. And let's say you're uh, some hospital somewhere and you have a non, your nonprofit organization and these individuals could be benefiting from public service loan forgiveness. So you're helping them by giving them $100, which they're having to pay 40 extra dollars in taxes on, and you're having to pay another $60 in benefit costs and taxes so that you can just reduce the value of public service loan forgiveness for them working there anyway. It's in some instances, it's a total, total waste of money. Um, but you know, people want to help and they just, they just have a, there's a major disconnect as to how to help, how to navigate the student loans on a personal level from the employer side, from the lender side to the consumer side, and even within financial services. There's just a real disconnect of how really to benefit borrowers that have these student loans to, to help them make the correct decision. And I get it, it's not easy. Yeah, definitely. So switching gears a little bit, because um, we had some questions about medical professionals. So is it a realistic option for a doctor or a nurse to really to get public student loan forgiveness if they're working at a hospital? And, and what does that look like? Yes, it is. So I think one of the one of the concerns is most people are looking at uh, what's been in the news over the course of the last two years with regards to the lack of individuals that have been granted public service loan forgiveness. Um, so I want to address that first, then I'll kind of circle back to the rest of the questions. So um, the GAO okay. has released a number of uh, 
report stating that you know 99% of people who have applied for public service loan forgiveness to date have been denied. Um, and while that is indeed the case, that really should have been the um, expectation at this point in time because m- most borrowers w- were are not in a position to be benefiting from public service loan forgiveness. So you had to have been in an income-driven repayment plan. Um, you had to have had direct loans. You know, ten years ago, when the when the first people could have been eligible in two thousand seven, ten years before that, sorry, people could have been eligible in two thousand seventeen. Ten years before that, two thousand and seven, income based repayment wasn't available. Um, the only plan was income contingent repayment. You had to have direct loans, which the borrower didn't choose. That was determined by the the school and what program they they were using. You could not easily do a direct consolidation. Um, Borrowers didn't really know the difference. They had federal loans. They didn't know if they were direct or if they were fell. There was no way to do employer certification forms with the Department of Education for them to verify that you were on track or how many payments that you've made. So um, it, it shouldn't have been anticipated that people were having the loans forgiven. What happened was people said, hey, I've been working for 10 years. I've had student loans this whole time. I'm applying. Um, and they're getting denied because they didn't meet the very specific criteria. Um that's not only the borrower's fault, because why would they know the terms and conditions of these forgiveness programs? Uh, it's also the fault of the loan servicers, the fault of the Department of Education, the fault of the schools. There's, there's fault to, to go around as to why the default rate is so high. Uh, but what people should not be blaming that on is the fact that the government is, is trying to not grant what is rightfully um, contractually obligated to the borrowers. What happened is borrowers didn't meet the contractual obligations that were in place. Uh, and and there was a lot of def- there was a lot of fault at blame as to guiding them, helping them to make sure that they were doing that if that was their intent. Um, you know, the loan servicers ten years ago when I started when I was talking to them, they didn't believe that these programs were legitimate. They weren't investing their time and resources in it, or their records are awful. Um, there's a lot of problems. Um, I think the environment for borrowers today is much improved than it was for borrowers 10 years ago. Advice is better. Uh, information is more readily available with regards to income-driven repayment plans. Records at the loan services are much stronger. Um, so I, I certainly think that there is uh, value here in income and with the income-driven repayment plans and public service loan forgiveness. So I don't want people that are reading these headlines to be uh, concerned uh, with the fact that people aren't getting forgiveness and not pursue it because it is contractually obligated to them. So, so, so with regards to public service loan forgiveness and the issues that were there, people should know that it's contractually obligated to you. That will happen. Um, you just have to make sure you're you're checking the boxes along the way. Do you have the right types of loans? Are you making your payments on time? Are you working for the right employer? Are you the right kind of um, repayment plan? Those things. Um, are, are what people need to make sure they're doing. And then after that, are they deriving the, much, the most amount of value out of it possible? Um, but for nurses, yeah. you know, but for specifically for nurses and doctors and medical students, or, you know, they're primarily working for nonprofit organizations, 501c3s. Now, many physicians um, may do their residency and fellows with their teaching hospitals that are nonprofit organizations, but more than likely when they enter into practice, um, they are going to be working for a private physicians group. So think of like the big hospitals, you know, your Kaisers. Um, Kaiser Permanente is your nonprofit health organization where many of the nurses and physical therapists and pharmacists are employees of, but the physicians are generally employees of a physicians group, which is actually not a nonprofit. So um, now in other hospitals, you know, the Mayo Clinic, um, community-based hospitals, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, these teaching hospitals, all the uh, the doctors are usually employees of the hospital. So uh, depending upon where you end up practicing, um, what line of medicine you're in, uh, it's very rare to see a podiatrist or optometrist that's working in a nonprofit sector. Um, but if you're a general practitioner or an mm-hmm. ER doc, it may be. Um, so where you work and where you decide to accept your position can lead to whether or not you're going to get that public service loan forgiveness. Um, and then you'd also want to take a close look at what repayment plan that you're on. Um, you know, if you let the government decide and they choose to revise pay as you earn for you, you have no income cap. Um, so you may want to look at plans that have income caps. And that might be uh, too much detail for our high overview here. But you'd want to explore what plan you're, you're choosing early on to benefit you for the income driven repayment plan, public service loan forgiveness later. Yeah. So let's say you didn't realize you had to do all that. You've been, you know, working for a hospital for the last 10 years and you didn't do the, you didn't 
take on direct loans and get into one of these income-driven repayment programs is all lost and you basically need to start over from scratch? Unfortunately, so if, if you had direct loans, um, there is a temporary public service loan forgiveness pool of money that's available for borrowers that had direct loans, made payments, but were in the wrong plan. And then they would have to prove that the payments that they made were equal to or greater than what their income-driven repayments would be. The government's been pretty stingy with this pool of money, um, but it is there to, mm. to, to grant to borrowers. If you had the wrong types of loans, say you had Fell loans or Perkin loans, or you had health um, HRSA nurse loans or health profession loans, uh, unfortunately, you don't really have much of an option for that temporary public service loan forgiveness pool because the con- public service loan forgiveness is only available to direct loans. So because you had the wrong type of loans this entire time, at this point in time, you'd have to consolidate and you'd be starting from scratch um, with what your payment amounts could be and how many qualifying payments you could make. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So I really appreciate everything that you have to offer on this podcast. It's been fantastic. Um, and I'm sorry, it's definitely were some technical difficulties on my side. So don't blame Jance. Jance is amazing. <laughs> Um, and we'll do our best. Um, but yeah, no, I, um, you've had just amazing insights about public student loan forgiveness and income driven repayment programs and everything else that is really out there for the government. So I guess one quick final question. Um, I've definitely seen this come across where clients think that they don't have to pay their loans anymore because the government lost their paperwork or they, um, they don't have a a copy of the contract anymore. So if you could just quickly give a note about that, that would be great. Well, um, I don't foresee the government losing that contract um, there. What, what I have seen, though, uh, is individuals in with private student loans who have uh, been sued by a collections company or their lender after not making payments. And the only way a private company can collect on student loans is through litigation. So the federal government has these unlimited collection authorities, right? They can garnish your wages. They can take your social security. They can take your tax return. Uh, Private lenders do not have those authorities. Um, The only way that they can recoup money is to sue you, which means that Mm. they have to take you to court. They have to prove that you owe money. They have to win the settlement. And then you have to be able to pay them. Right. Uh, And what has happened is that, uh, a number of companies have gone to court to sue individuals for the private debt, student debt that they owe, but they don't have the documentation to prove that the borrower owns it, owes it. As such, uh, those have been thrown out. Um, so I have had some clients that have, were in collections on private student loans, um, making or not making some negotiated payment. They would try to reach out and get a promissory note and get no response. And it was a really shady industry they were working with. Um, we had sent them a letter um, inquiring about the perceived debt that was owed and asking for statements and had the outcome being that the collections company sent a letter back to the client saying, you're, you're right. Um, we have reported this as paid in full and we won't contact you anymore. Right. Um, so yeah. there, there are with private student loans, that is it can be the case that the lender doesn't have the paperwork, can't substantiate the claims that they you actually owe them money. Um, however, usually that comes out um, through some sort of lawsuit or collections. It's more difficult to prove. Um, and there are also some fuzzy areas of law here where if you're making payments on that loan, then you are effectively um, in some states agreeing that you have that debt. Um, so it would be yes, state specific sure. and it would be something you'd want to talk to an attorney about. Um, but if you believe that, that you don't owe that debt, um, certainly you have the right to inquire about it and, and ensure that, that they do have the documents to, to prove to you that you do owe that, that debt. Yeah. So it sounds like the long and the short of it is, is that if the government has your loan on NSLDS.org, then you probably should be paying that. And, <laughs> and yeah. if you did actually borrow the funds from a private institution, then, you know, you should be repaying that as well. But um, if it's something that you don't actually owe, then it's worth litigating potentially against. Right. And, and if, if, if someone's trying to collect on a debt and they can't prove to you that you own it and you're not sure that you owe it and you're not sure how that they can show how much you actually owe and it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. Um, but with that being said, I think there are a lot of people that are looking for opportunities just to get out from underneath this debt, hoping that, mm-hmm. hey, if I, if I just stop paying my student loans, they'll go away. 
Um, well, again, with private loans, there is a statute of limitation. It's in, it varies from state to state. If they don't sue you in that statute of limitation, once it's passed, they don't have the right to collect that debt anymore. Um, but the federal government, you're, you're not going to run into those issues. You're going to hit collections and wage garnishment well before that statute of limitation is going to pass. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, gents, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot, and I hope that all the listeners out there have learned a lot, too. Gents, uh, also, you have a podcast, correct? We do. The uh, CSLA Board of Standards uh, has a podcast, myself, Heather, um, Larry at times, and then we have uh, guests on as often as we can. We talk about the ridiculousness that student loans is and uh, <laughs> get experience of different advisors and clients and what their relationship is with uh, engaging in, in this mess that we've created for ourselves. Um, but I, I, I would like to leave you guys... You know, th- thanks for having me on, Morgan. And I would like to to to, to leave everybody with this this idea that um, the federal government likes to think that you you don't need to pay for help with this. And while certainly you can navigate it yourself, um, it, it's like everything in your finances. Going to somebody that's knowledgeable and trained and ethical um, it is only going to help you better understand, if not better, navigate the process than you can do on your own. Yes, I couldn't agree more and definitely look for somebody who has the CSLP um, because those people, they know what they're doing and they really want to help you. Um, That's the one thing I've found, especially in the fee-only financial planning community, um, is that we really want to help our clients. We're not just out there to to make the money. I mean, granted, obviously the money comes into play, but um, most of the people who are working in that capacity, they've found their passion and and they do want to help. So definitely reach out. Um, there are a number of ways to find advisors who work in student loans. So we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes. We'll also link to the CSLA's podcast. Um, and we'll put a bunch of different notes about all the things that Jance has going on. And um, with that, Jance, thank you so much. And um, maybe we could have you on again soon. Yeah, that would be great. We, uh, we might have some more exciting stuff coming down the pipeline that we can talk about where Heather and I are working on our own um, employee benefit here that is going to be rocking. So happy to be on again. Love talking student loans, even though probably everyone else shrieks at the idea of it, but um, (laughs) thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, great. Bye listeners. We'll talk to you in two weeks.